our first reading this evening is on page 7 of your zine. It's from Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal those there who are ill and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Our second reading is from Acts chapter 27 to 39 and chapter 28 from six, verse 16. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow struck fast and would not move and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming, swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer. Although he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has, has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or, die, or suddenly fall dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, an official, chief official of the island. He welcomed us into his home and showed us generous, generous hospitality for three days. His father was ill in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. 
When this had happened, the rest of those on the island who were ill came and were cured. They honoured us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. We put, it in a, we put it in at Syracuse and stayed there for three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up and on the following day, we reached Puteloli. There, we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Victoria. Let's pray and let's explore this passage briefly together. Father, we pray now for Malta. Fill that island with your miraculous saving love. And we also pray for Sydney. Fill this city with Christ's teaching. We believe this can only happen by the power of your Holy Spirit and for the glory of Jesus Christ, whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, this will be a normal 25-minute sermon, but I'll be seeding half of it to our new friends, the Galeas. As I said a moment ago, the Galeas will be going to Malta, if the Lord wills it, in January next year with the Church Missionary Society, and we are going to link with them. This is not these guys blowing in and blowing out again. We are going to link with them or partner with them in the years to come. And so we thought we'd take a break from Job, think a little bit about mission in Malta and mission here and how we can partner them, what you can do. And the simplest thing you can do today, the one thing we can do with respect to the Galeas, is take the form out that you received in your hands and uh, tick the box saying, please email me their prayer requests. We'll talk about that in a few moments' time, about why it would be a good idea for you to do that. Now, that's first base. A billion other things we can do, but that's first step, making contact. We'll meet the Galeas in a moment, Chris and Christy, and we'll see on a video in a moment their three beautiful children, Joshua, Esther, and Caleb, ages 11, 10, and 7. But just for a moment, I want to consider their task and ours by looking at this famous moment in the book of Acts where Malta is mentioned. Go to a search engine and look for the word Malta in the Bible and you'll find it mentioned, as I said, only once. You guys are going to hear from this passage for years to come. It's going to be your passage. And it's right there in chapter Acts 28, verse 1. Once safely on shore after a shipwreck, we found, out, we found out that the island was called Malta. Go to Google Images and you'll see a beautiful island. Go to Google Maps and you'll see it's smack bang in the middle of the Mediterranean. Prime real estate, strategic real estate. I had uh, dinner with a new friend last night who said, Malta, sure, he's been listening to this podcast from some battle that took place there in the 16th century that, you know, sort of could have changed the course 
of, of modern history. Malta lies smack in the middle of the Mediterranean, just at the bottom of the foot of Italy. In fact, I surmise that if Sicily wasn't there, then millions of primary school kids would say that Italy was trying to kick Malta, not Sicily, although it is a little bit further to the south. Visit it and you'll see an island rich in history. Can I ask anybody here been to Malta? Thank you. Of course, the bishop and his wife for history. And I'm going to presume Victoria through Mediterranean, a love of the Mediterranean. Would that be fair to say? Family history. Look it up in the Bible and uh, you won't find a lot, just what we read today, namely that Paul was being taken to Rome. You could see that at the end of our passage. Since he had appealed to Caesar. He wanted to be tried in Rome and this story in Malta is sort of like the penultimate stay before arriving in Rome. He dips into other places but this is his primary stay before arriving in Rome. They were famously shipwrecked on the island of Malta on what is now called presumably the, the sandbar is presumably uh, called St Paul's Island for obvious reasons. I googled it and a miraculous thing happened there famously involving a snake stuck to a hand. Talk to these Galeas and you'll hear about a place of great gospel need. One thing to note before reading Acts 27 and 28 and that's this, that the gospel that you have, the message that you have is built on real history, real places that are nominated, that you can visit. The island of Crete, they shouldn't have gone from there. Cordia, Malta, they no nominate the amount of people on board, 276. You don't nominate that if you're talking about fairy tales. There's other places they talk about, Syracuse, not New York, Syracuse in the Mediterranean, which means that we can be confident that we aren't, at least this, we're not reading fairy tales. This is not in a land far away in a time long ago. Or like in the movies, you know, between heaven and hell, there's a place called Malta. This is not that. As John Dixon says, and please join us on the testimony training, the Zoom. As John Dixon likes to say, so much of the Bible is built on history, it's like the Bible puts its own head on the chopping block of history and asks anybody to take a swing. You could prove it wrong. You can't prove fairy tales wrong. So four simple things to learn about mission, and these are on your outline. Live streamers have a link to the order of service where you'll find the outline. And I won't nominate them now. I'll just go through them slowly in the interest of time. First thing you learn, the winds didn't bring you here tonight. God did. Just before our passage, Paul the prisoner makes the point on that ship he says men only men there I see I can see that our voyage is is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo, cargo and to our own lives as well but the centurion instead of listening to what Paul said followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship that's not the first time that's happened in the Mediterranean And not the last. 
In this passage, you can see that Paul had a real sense, a confident sense that God was in it, that God was in charge, that fate had nothing to do with it, nor merely the blind forces of nature, nor just the storm. But they hit that storm, as Paul said would happen, and the, those on, on board the ship feared for their lives. 27 verse 20, the storm continued raging. We finally gave up all hope of being saved. But you know, if you know the Gospels, you know that Jesus calms the storm. He walks on water. So they were all anxious about it. In verse 21 of, of 27, after they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss, appeals to profit. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, he says to them, because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. How does he know that? And he tells you, last night, an angel of God, to whom I belong, the God whom I belong, whom I serve, stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul, just like Jesus said in that boat. You must stand trial before Caesar. So you're going to survive this. You've got to head to Rome. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. That's what the angel said. So Paul said to the men, keep up your courage, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, he said, we must run aground on some island. That island is called Malta. Everything you see in chapter 27 and 28 is about God being in the mess. You know, the centurion, the soldiers are plotting to take the lives. Centurion thwarts it. He wants to save Paul. He orders those who could swim. The ship, the boat runs aground on a sandbar. He orders those who could swim to jump overboard and get to land. And the rest were to get there on planks or other pieces of the ship. Such detail. And in this way, everyone reached the land safely. For those of you who think there's only chance, listen to what Paul, the same Paul said elsewhere in Acts 17. Paul writes, from one man God made all the nations, he's over it all, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. In another translation, the exact times in which you should live and the exact places where you live. God did this. He placed you right here in this room tonight so that you would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. He's not far from, from any one of us. The winds have not brought you here to the church this evening. God has so that you'll reach out and find him. You're in Sydney because God wants you to be. But sometimes he calls us elsewhere and perhaps even to Malta. The second thing you learn is in life you'll meet what you might call people of peace, those who pursue peace, as Jesus said, and they will be full of kindness and hospitality, and you know it's true. Acts 28 verse 1 Follow with me. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. Perhaps there was a sign. 
the islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. They took care of them. Anyone of faith who denigrates those without faith, saying that somehow they're worse than me, morally worse than me, they're lying. Or worse, they don't get the gospel they say they understand. I'm the sinner here, saved by grace. I expect God to be at work in my life. But you will meet people, as you know, who are very kind, profoundly hospitable, sometimes more hospitable than the Christians are for various reasons. Paul met them on Malta, including a little later a gentleman called Publius. I like to think that Publius was named by the creators of Asterix. Maybe he owned a pub beforehand. But in chapter 28, verse 7, there was an estate near where they were shipwrecked that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. You know, it's Kirribilli House. They're at the Prime Minister's home. And Publius welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. And in verse 10, they honoured us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. No record here of them giving their lives to Christ. Just kindness. Chris and Christy, you'll meet people, of course, of profound kindness. You already have. We're going to hear in a moment's time about meeting that priest in Melbourne, you know. And we meet people of hospitality here in Sydney. It does not mean they know the Lord. Because knowing the Lord is not just about being hospitable. It's more than that. It's about knowing the Lord. After all, Nicodemus in John chapter 3 was moral and good and religious, and Jesus said to him, you must be born from above. Something must happen in your life, where a miracle, where you pass from death to life because you put your faith in Jesus Christ. But I think it's good for us to go looking for these people of hospitality, what Jesus calls people who pursue peace, or you might like to call them people of peace. And I'd like to explore this in... in uh, in, in times to come, but you might say people of peace are not fractious people looking to checkmate your faith and, and uh, tell you why you're silly and stupid to believe what you believe. That's, that's not a person of peace. People of peace are people who are open to the gospel. Perhaps they're open people with big hearts and they're willing to let you into their home or at least into their lives. They ask questions and you ask questions of them and you like to get to know them, and they like to get to know you. You don't have to spend your life um, butting heads against people who just want to fight you, although that's sometimes fun and sometimes depressing. There are people that you meet in life that you say, you know what, I love getting to know you. And Jesus talks about them in, in, Luke, in the Luke's reading that we heard a moment ago. Third thing to learn is the natural bent of humanity or humans is towards superstition in Acts 28, verses 3 to 6. Uh, there's this famous incident that happens on the island. I can still see the kids' storybook when I was growing up, Paul standing there by a fire with this snake hanging from his, from his hand. Because there in the cold, with the islanders helping out, Paul gathers a pile of brushwood 
and as he puts it on the fire, a viper driven by the heat fastened itself to his hand. And when the islanders see the snake hanging from his hand, they assume first murderer, and then very quickly they turn him into a god. And you can see the sort of superstitious heart or behaviour of the islanders. When they see it, first they assume he must be a murderer. After all, he's got a poisonous snake hanging from his hand. In verse 4, they assume that the goddess justice has got him. Therefore, he must be a murderer. You see, they believe that there's a solid link, a solid line between a person's suffering and their sin. Ooh, are we back in Job? But when Paul doesn't swell up and die, they assume he must be a god. Verse 6, swinging in such ways tells you that there's something superstitious going on. Now, we have this one incident, incident for sure, but I sincerely believe, and people have remarked over the years, that superstition is the default position of humanity. And it comes something, something along these lines, that when people are afraid, and there's good reason to be, and when those same people want things to be better, or a culture wants things to be better, and who doesn't? But you have no one God over it all where you just rest in his plans and purposes, persevering in faith and believing that there is a God above me who's for me, who loves me, who's not in competition with other gods that I'll have to bow before and placate, or the forces of nature. That if people are afraid and they want things to be better, then the bent will be towards superstition without a God above it all. Meaning that individuals and even cultures will reach for instinctual answers, for anxious questions. Black cats will be the norm. And by the way, don't believe people who say the science will replace faith because I posit, can't prove, but we'll see, that in the next 10, 50, certainly 100 years, that the children of the ones who believe in science will still be afraid, will still be hoping for something better and will return in some form to something superstitious. And you can see early signs even in our society. What's the news? And the weather guy will say, you know, here's the, you know, the winds. But fingers crossed, hopefully tomorrow will be good. And you and everybody knows what that means. Hopefully tomorrow will be good. But you're like, what? Did you just say fingers crossed? Did you just talk about lucky charms? Did you just... And it has a religious form as well. People rubbing crosses or turning up to church because maybe God will... G.K. Chesterton has this magnificent quote where he says this. He says, let me get it for you. I found it this morning. He says, when men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing in anything, including superstitious beliefs. Now, that has to be proven, but I want to make the case to you or begin to make it. Fourth and finally, the gospel is about a miraculous God. Amen. There are miracles here, no doubt. Uh, presumably the snake is a miracle, but certainly Publius' father is cured, and many others on the island are cured as well. But this is not superstition. This is not lucky charms. This is a trust in God. It's a mistake to lump superstition in with faith in God, and therefore a God who can do the impossible. 
What's so interesting about this record, and maybe it's a reason we don't use it very much in sermons, but there's no record of the gospel being preached, no record of anybody giving their lives to Christ. Is it implied? Maybe. But, and yet we know from the verses printed in your orders of service just before the readings that this is what Paul did wherever he went. He preached that God had come in the person of Jesus Christ, which itself is miraculous, the incarnation. And that, just, that means it's not just about self-improvement where you need just good models and a couple of books. God had to t- come, he had to turn up. Paul preached wherever he went of Christ crucified, that he died my death for me, that he rose again from the dead as the first to rise to give me hope now and hope beyond death, power now and power beyond death, And somehow Paul preached that by the actions of Jesus Christ, I could be confident before a holy God and have hope in this this broken world. It's miraculous. Paul preached that Christ will come again as Lord of all, as judge and as Lord of all, Lord even of the storm. And Paul asked everyone everywhere to live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also to speak it, to share the hope that you have, and no doubt in that time on the island Paul shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask Andy to bring the screen down now. St. Francis of Assisi is famous for saying, uh, preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. Here's the only problem. He never actually said it, and nor did he live it. Francis of Assisi was a person who loved to speak of the hope that he has. That phrase that is repeated over and over again in our current society, preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. Mark Garley, an expert on St. Francis of Assisi, wrote this. He said, the problem is that St. Francis did not say it, nor did he live it. He said, I suspect that we sentimentalize Francis, like many saints of, of the past, because we live in a sentimental age spilling over into a superstitious age. We hope against hope that we won't have to take the trouble to figure out how exactly to talk about the gospel, that somehow our unbelieving friends will catch the gospel once our lifestyle has been infected with it. No, we need the testimony training, November the 10th. Preach the gospel, use words if necessary, goes hand in hand with a postmodern assumption that words are finally empty of meaning. They're not. In fact, it subtly denigrates the high value that the prophets and Jesus and Paul placed on preaching. Of course we want our actions to match our words as much as possible, but the gospel's a message. Here in Malta, there in Malta, here in Sydney, news about an event and a person upon which the history of the planet turns. The gospel's the the true strategic thing, not Malta in the Mediterranean, the gospel in all the world. It's news about a person upon which the history of the planet turns. We preach a God who knows his way out of the grave, a miraculous gospel. We preach it here in Sydney, you guys in Malta, and we preach it now and then.